This is Heads and Tails, a podcast created by two young women looking for answers from the people who most inspire us. We set out to learn the untold stories of women through not only their successes, but also the unexpected choices and twists that shape their lives. From toothpaste to panties, how Lita Orzek's innate entrepreneurial mindset led her to create the world's most comfortable thong, made by women for women. From selling a thong a second to keeping production made in the USA, Hanky Panky's Lita Orzek explains how her empire came to be. Brooklyn and moved uptown to attend Barnard College. Did you ever envision yourself becoming a CEO or even starting your own company? Did I ever think that I would be a CEO of a, of a company? No. Because although I am told that, and I do remember this actually, that when I was in elementary school, I used to raid my, my parents' um, cabinet where they kept, you know, like fresh toothpaste and things they hadn't opened yet. And I would take them to school and sell them. Could you, could you imagine? Oh, wow. An what early adapt. What that suggests, maybe I like the idea of selling, you know, isn't that weird? And I do actually remember that. But um, when I went to Barnard and I chose Barnard over other schools that I had applied to, when I, after I got in, uh, because I didn't want to leave New York. I really was, I guess I really was uh, a New Yorker through and through and couldn't imagine being anywhere else. But anyway, my, my major was, was psychology. Um, and when I graduated, I went on to graduate school. But a big part of that was not really having a goal, ironically. Mm-hmm. Uh, not knowing what I wanted to do when I got out of Barnard. So I just stayed in school, but I wasn't going to business school. I went to teacher's college to get a, uh, I was in the doctorate program um, in social psychology. So I never had a thought that I was going to be going into business. What happened was, that when I was at Barnard, I met um, someone who was a designer, Gail Epstein. She had had gone to high school with the person who became my best friend at Barnard. They had grown up together in St. Louis. And so that's how I I met Gail, my my best friend at Barnard, Marilyn, um, Marilyn Freud, graduated, you know, from Barnard with me in 68. And... uh, Gail, and she left New York, but Gail stayed in New York where she was working as a designer and we were fast friends and we were friends through my graduate school and for my first few years out of graduate school when I was working. Um, And then she gave me this wonderful birthday present for my 30th birthday that became Hanky Panky. We started to think about taking my, my taking samples to stores. Gail created some samples for me 
And on my lunch hour, literally on my lunch hour, because the Lord knows I wouldn't have done anything wrong, like making an appointment for a store for 9 a.m. when I should be working. Um, but I, I, I did call stores, and stores at that time, to me, pretty much meant department stores, because that's where I shopped. And that's where, you know, things were going on. There were so many department store chains that do not exist now. Um, and that's pretty much where most of the shopping took place. That's where, that's where it was at for retail. Um, and so, so you envisioned women buying these thongs for themselves, right? Wait a second. Wait a second. Thongs. You are, you are 11 years ahead of. Oh, of, okay. I see. Nine years, nine years ahead. So what? So what is it that Hanky Pinky started off with? In, at that time, it was a panty, a fallback panty, a bikini panty, okay. and a soft bra. We did need a little bit of money here to uh, buy handkerchiefs um, and to, uh, you know, get the trims that we needed. The the uh, elastics and all that um, we needed because nobody was going to give us credit at that time. Um, the when we got our first orders, that was when we needed a little bit more money to produce, and, uh, and also to find a little showroom because it, you know pre-internet wasn't like I was going to be able to sell to anybody online. Um, I had to have a place where they could come, a little showroom, and it literally was a very tiny showroom. It was <clears throat> about 450, 500 square feet um, in a building opposite the New York Public Library, uh, but we had to pay rent. So our investment, our initial investment was, as I recall, about fifteen thousand dollars. Now that's nineteen seventy-seven dollars. So I, I know you could probably look online to see what the modern equivalent of that is, but it's still not a lot of money. That's because Gail and I were and still are pretty fiscally conservative in how we run the business and how you know we think about doing things. Our the very very first order that. I delivered, and it was me who delivered it, was to Lord & Taylor, Now I was out of business. Um, but Gail made that entire order herself. Um, and she did it in uh, her sample room at this 7th Avenue sweater making company she was working for. You know, she went in on the weekend and, and did that. Yeah. Where was the shift to the thong? Once you had these handkerchiefs, where did the thong come in? Okay, so we got on. Now we're dying to know. We got on the map with our novelty handkerchief styles. Okay, but they were, and it wasn't. It, but they weren't. Um, they weren't really long term for for comfort. Okay. Uh, they were more just like sexy lingerie. They were more like 
Oh, these are so darn cute. Um, it, they, it wasn't really even, they weren't not sexy. I mean, they weren't, you know, sort of what people call granny panties. They were, well, you know, briefer and cuter. Uh, it was over uh, time, though, <clears throat> that Gail started thinking about stretch fabrics for more comfort. And she started to incorporate the handkerchief motifs into stretch cotton. Um, at this point, however, I should, I should mention that we did need a little bit more money uh, to be able to make, make more of the orders that were coming in and to buy things like uh, stretch, stretch cotton, <laughs> you know, right. as opposed to just the handkerchiefs. And uh, we needed, we, we, we got a little more money from our families, from our parents as collateral. These were loans that we were going to use to put up as collateral at a bank so that they would lend us money. Okay. That is, that is how we, we got more money by going to a bank, but putting up collateral because we were nobody who they, we didn't have a business that they were going to believe in. They had no incentive to, to no incentive whatsoever right. to lend us money. Um, without, without a fully collateralized loan. So that's, that's how we were able to expand a little bit. When they lent us the money, we were able to pay back our parents uh, and use the additional loan money to buy more materials. We were not paying ourselves. We were not doing any advertising. Um, we, we, we also didn't extend credit to stores. We tried to get their payments up front, but a few stores, like you know, the department stores were not willing to pay COD, so we had to wait 30 days or usually 30 days to get paid, but that money went right back into the business. What's which, a COD? COD, cash on delivery. Okay. Which is really paying by credit card. Right. But back then, back then there was no paying by credit card. I'm sure I didn't have a credit card. Everything was by checks. Right. Hard to believe. These are, you know, this is my lifetime. Uh -huh. Changes have been so rapid that, um, you know, you guys, what do you mean you can't pay by credit card? Yeah, now what everything's part of a credit card. But that's, that's kind of the way it was. Um, yeah, when, when did the thong come? Right, right. The so the male is now beginning to, to start designing with stretch fabrics for, for, with an eye on comfort in her designs now. Not just novelty, but, but comfort and also nat natural, natural fabrics because back then, uh, underwear was... Mm, not really cotton. It was nylon, and a nylon trico. It was called. That was the fabric for the industry. So cotton. We loved. We loved working with cotton, and uh, 
that's what we did. And that was another new statement for us to interest people. But Gail wanted to, wanted to use stretch laces, not rigid laces, so that they could be really comfortable. And that's where she started working with um, a supplier who could develop that product with her. The very first thong came out in 1986 after Gail had tinkered like crazy to make sure that it was comfortable. She was uh, so motivated by, you know, the discomfort of a G-string and the, you know, sort of lack of sexiness. Although I think these days we would disagree that bikini underpants are, are not sexy. They are. Depends on how everything mm -hmm. is designed, you know, and all that. But totally. But she was trying to come out with something that didn't have the fit issues of bikinis, it's because bikinis still have to be concerned about the size and shape of butts. Mm -hmm. And with a thong, you know, that kind of flies out the window. But a g-string is really it's un uncomfortable. Yeah, uh, I'm in agreement. Yeah, yeah. Right. It's so she worked on she worked on a thong that would be comfortable. It took her took her I think she she says it took about a year. And she developed what our first style was actually the 6011 um in 1986 and it, it the body of it was cotton. The waist or hip band was a wide stretch lace. Mm -hmm. And that was, that was just a brilliant invention. But it really was. I mean, I imagine that it also kind of shifted the way that people were buying underwear. G-strings are catered to the male gaze, while the thong that Hanky Panky came out with was comfortable and was for women to buy themselves. And I think this kind of goes back to the fact that you guys are two female founders and you wanted underwear that was comfortable and sexy and you didn't have to compromise on one to get the other. That's exactly, that's exactly yeah. right. There's, there's my quote. You just said it. Perfectly put. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, uh, but I, I should point out that back then, because we're still pre-internet, we're, we're pre-computer. We're still in, I'm still entering orders by hand. Um, it's, it's honestly, for me, unfathomable to think about a world without a computer. Yep. And, and it's just as, it's amazing that you guys have been able to kind of go through so many iterations of buying and it was first stores and then e-commerce and Amazon. And yeah. Yeah, it is kind of amazing looking back on it. I completely agree with you. Um, so, but the only, so the only a little shift I want to explain about what you said uh, was that because we're pre-internet and pre-computer, yeah, the thong is out there, but how does the word get out? It is, it is people, store buyers saying, hmm, okay, I'll, Try that. And a lot of stories, you know, the better story, Bergdorf Goodman, I'm going to name names. They didn't want to carry our brand because our name was Hanky Panky. So yes, we had a raunchy name. Well, that's exciting. There you go. But um, yes, there, yes, but it did maybe in some cases it slowed down our forward momentum. But that wasn't the only reason. 
the other reason is that we were operating on what is called word of mouth, word of mouth buzz. And word of mouth buzz, today you'd call it, you know, all the social media, uh, you know, started with blogging and moved to more robust social media through Facebook and Instagram and, you know, TikTok and everything else. Um, but, but word of mouth buzz is very powerful, but very slow moving. Uh-huh. You can imagine. It's literally uh, um, somebody buying our product and saying, whoa, this is the most comfortable underwear I've ever had. And like now we can see four thongs, right? And maybe gifting a sister, you know, uh, mm-hmm. or... Or even gifting their mom. I mean, we have grown up as a a multi-generational company through word of mouth gifting that eventually did turn into, you know, internet buzz. Uh, But there were... I still think there's something to be said about word of mouth. I'll be honest, personally, of course, yep. Instagram feed is inundated with buy this, get this, purchase this. But when a friend of mine whose opinion I trust tells me you have to get this t-shirt, I buy the t-shirt. Whereas it's harder for me to actually purchase when there's so many different um, advertisements and people saying buy this on social media. Yeah, Alyssa... Why would I, you know, I could not agree with you more. Uh, that is one reason I probably that Gail and I never got um, put our money behind traditional advertising. And mm-hmm. by traditional, I'm still talking pre-internet. So it would have been print advertising. And we didn't do it because, of co- why would you believe us? We're the brand. Right. Isn't it more powerful when a friend, you know, says that to you? And so let's also... I mean, the thing is, is you have a company that's been around for 43 years that's backing everything you're saying. You debuted this thong in 86. It grew huge, which we can get to later in 2004. And they're still in massive bowls at the checkout counter at your boutique or at the department store or their... I have nothing in my underwear drawer but a hanky panky, you know, and I'm not the only one that has those experiences. So you have something to, yeah, to prove yourself. I'm, I'm curious though how you decided or kind of bought into this idea that okay, we have to do complete 180. People aren't going to into stores as much anymore, unfortunately. And I'm curious to know like how you dealt with that shift. Okay, well, let's go back a little bit. Yes, we started out at department stores, and uh, that's because that's where I shopped, and that's really all I knew. Um, However, our product, our pricing, and our special quality became more of a boutique brand. Uh, in not a long time after we started. And the department stores fell away as our main customer. Um, there were a lot of demands from department stores. At the beginning, it was much more 
family and friendly and I had a one-on-one -on -one relationship with the buyers but over time that it became very corporate and uh, our brand was it was much uh, just made sense being sold with the, the sort of one-on-one -on -one attention that boutique and small store owners gave it I see um, so that was the way we sold for mainly thousands of stores within the United States who could give us, you know, personal attention and who got personal attention from us and our sales reps for the first 20 years. Yes, the thongs grew and so did the, our entire, you know, bottoms business because we became known as, as a bottoms specialist um even world's uh, most comfortable thong world's most comfortable thong but what we also make yes and we trademarked that that line um because it happens to be happened to be true back then it sort of still is yeah um, um but we also built our bottoms business because as important as that one uh style is it, you know it's very, very important to not not be too stuck as as a brand um, and to develop and to to think more broadly. And our expansion has has mainly been around color and different prints, so that what women are buying now, because you know our we also our people joke about our our model being a little bit unsustainable, our quality is so high that <laughs> our garments last forever. Right. So how do we get repeat business? Well, and we've actually turned into a bit of a collectible brand. Um, oh, 100%. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, my yeah, getting yeah. the new colors and stuff? Yes, we always have new colors and we always have new prints. Uh, so although you might be buying the, exactly the same fit of a thong, we've got you know literally dozens and dozens of colors and all and always new colors and but new prints too with matching tops and so on and it's not just thongs you know it's bikinis it's girl it's boy boy shorts it's girl bikinis it's um, our our retro group you know we've got lots of SKUs stock keeping units so. The one thing that's really unique about you guys is you're only one size, right? Well, the first thong that Gail developed, which uh, was also uh, was definitely a game changer, was the the stretch lace that she very closely developed with the manufacturer had such perfect properties for stretch and recovery that it, it she developed it to fit um, a very large size range so back then yes it was called now we're just talking about the thong now yes yeah. it was one size fits all um, over time you know we we owned up to the fact that that really we realized um, uh, that that was not really a, um, a true diversity message mm -hmm. because right. it wasn't really fitting all. It was, fit, it was 
fitting all in um, a medium size range. That is, say, 4 to 14. You know, and a lot of women are smaller, and a lot of women are bigger. So over time, we developed our, our petite thong and our plus thong um, and also petite styles. And they're collaborations that we do that are moments in time, and that's just what they should be, and they're planned to be moments in time. Um, you know, we collaborate with, uh, well, what do we have coming out now? We have a collaboration with uh, Monique Lullier. Uh, Ooh. You know who she is? Yeah. Yes. Very fancy. Beautiful, fancy designer. dress designer. Uh, it, bridal, specifically bridal, yeah. That, you know, it, it, when, when we develop these collaborations, they're very specific for, for one season, um, maybe a couple of seasons, but it is fashion and it's, we, we go in and we go out. And that kind of is the, uh, you know, the way to do it, uh, to be, to make smart business decision. Mm -hmm. Right. And in terms of business decisions, your employees are so kind of wrapped up in the company more so than a typical red women's lingerie company, I would say, because when Hanky Pinky had its 40th birthday, you decided to give each employee stock in the company. And I'm just wondering what were the driving factors that kind of led to the creation of Hanky Pinky's employee stock ownership fund. Okay. And also, what does that look like being that Hanky Pinky is a privately held company? Okay. Employee stock ownership plans are very, very complicated. Um, and I don't, I won't go into all the detail about, uh, about that. It is, a, it is a complicated structure, but it is intended to um, facilitate, uh, well, to, to have the owners, have the, all of our employees be owners of our brand. Yes, there, there's, there's nothing hidden there. It's, it's very transparent. Um, Gail and I are no longer uh, the owners of Hanky Panky. Hanky Panky is now 100% owned by everybody who works here uh, by having shares in the company. Um, that doesn't mean that we all get together and have votes on every single hire or, uh, or investment. That is not what an ESOP is. Um, but it is a very positive uh, way to reward people who work here. And, you know, when you're a privately owned company um, that, and in Gail and my situation, it's not a family company. It was Gail and me owning it totally, you know, 50-50. Uh, there aren't too many exit strategies that, are, would have been comfortable and fit with our value system. The main one that, and the obvious one, is that you sell your company. You sell your company to the highest bidder. And uh, we had, of course, over the years built up a tremendous amount of capital. And by that, I, I, and, and the capital I'm talking about is, is goodwill, an excellent reputation, and a profitable 
company. So we had a lot a line of people who were, who were interested in buying us. And that probably would have been a, a very profitable way for Gail and me to end our 40 years of hard work. However, it really wouldn't have fit into our value system that you know we had brought to the company uh, over uh, this long haul. Mm-hmm. Um, and, that, and that system you know, involved a high quality uh, product that was not a commodity, was not being made at the lowest price possible, uh, and not being sold to as many people as possible. We always had profitability at the top of our minds uh, and um, high quality and keeping our local um, contractors employed, keeping as much of our purchases um, domestic as possible. Um, and most most buyers would have probably saw a great deal of growth possible with this company and probably were thinking, boy, they're missing out on so many opportunities. I don't mean uh, to sound, you know, negative, no, but no. I think it's, it's obvious to a, lot of, to a lot of people that a lot can go wrong, you know, when you sell your company. I mean, and mm-hmm. to us, it felt like selling our souls even considering it but so the company is now is uh now in a a sort of trust structure where all of our employees interests are being managed by trustees to make absolutely sure that whoever is running the show um and that's not just gail and me anymore we have a robust leadership team of Stellar individuals who are who are doing uh, running the show very 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 well through extremely trying times, and you know we're, we're having this interview while we're still knee deep in a pandemic. Yep. Uh, just to put all of this into context, and we're still here. Haggy Peggy is still in business, uh, having been hammered for a few months of having to be closed, um, but then being allowed to reopen because we are a manufacturing company in New York State. So we were in phase one back in June when we could reopen our doors, but it was, you know, limping along. Um, Like we came back with casts, a full body cast on and had to, you know, make some very we had had to make some very disappointing decisions about letting people go and furloughing and all of that. Anyway, I think I'm getting sidetracked. I mean, not exactly. It's all very, it's all top of mind. Yeah. Top of mind. And it's important, it's important to think about all of these things with your, all of these things that you're speaking to go directly into this, ESOP. Yes, I, I, I think that we are still here because of our, um, our integrity is sort of shining through. 
Um, and when I say hour now, I, I really do mean um, Gail and I may have set the stage over many decades, uh, but we have, you know, we are moving on to what we call Hanky Panky 4.0. And uh, we do ha have a, a more robust leadership team with us now. Um, who are planning um, and looking to the future with the with our values intact, but some necessary changes, absolutely, um, as we move forward. I'm going to jump the gun. You're probably going to ask me about this. I'll answer the question, and that is, how can you continue to make everything in the United States and stay in business? Yeah. Okay. That yes. was one of our questions. Absolutely. And it's, um, it's very, very smart of you to be thinking that way. Uh, of course, we're thinking that way. It's been on our minds for as our prices, as we've been charged more for raw materials, as New York State instituted a you know, $15 minimum hourly wage. It's not that in other states. It's not that in other countries. We are absolutely wanting to, uh, to keep people employed in this country. We're wanting to make things in this country, and we do want to continue with that. Resources over the years are not as available. Uh, a, a more um, wide-ranging, you know, group of resources. Uh, a lot of, several, a lot, a lot, a certain portion of our raw materials are, do come in um, from Europe um, and other countries, and that's been going on for a while. We do want the best quality product, but our, our, our core, our signature stretch lace is still made in the United States. And um, all of our production, all of our soap cutting and sewing is, is still made here. We're so happy to be able to go to the facilities where everything is made, to go to the facilities where everything is cut. And it is not just a close uh, familial and um, strong relationship that we've built up uh, with our contractors and with our, our own plant, but it also allows us so much quality control. That does not mean that some work cannot be done in nearshore situations. That it's absolutely possible. Uh, we've been experimenting with that in very closely vetted uh, situations, and there may very, very well be um, you know, m more of that. Uh, but big picture, we're going, we're very, very wedded to all of our contractors, all of our American-made initiatives, and we're hoping that, we're, we're confident, actually, it's not, it's not hope, we're confident that's going to be able to continue. However, you know, we're not a commodity, but we're also, we can't, we can't make it impossible for you to buy our product. Right. You know, we've got to be practical and realistic. Um, so we take all of that into account. And we've got so many smart people on staff taking everything into account. 
and uh, producing the highest quality product at the most affordable price. That's why we're not a gigantic company. Size is also right. never been that important to us. Right. We make a lot of people happy and coming back for more. Um, we, can't, we can't price the product out of the realm of possibility, though. Wow. 1522. Well, that's good. I mean, it's a, it's a significant price that you don't not think about it, but it's, it's something you collect and add and bring in over time. And it lasts forever. And it lasts. I still have my first one that I got. Yeah. Me too. Me yeah. too. Belita. Yes. Thank you. This, you are just such a delight. Thank you so much for imparting all of your wisdom on us and our listeners. Well, uh, Thank you. Thank you, Alyssa. Thank you, Nina. I feel like you haven't heard the half of it, but um, that's just because there is... Maybe part two. Part two! Thank you so much for listening to the third episode of Heads and Tails. We'll see you on Monday, May 17th with the release of our fourth episode. In the meantime, please follow us on Instagram at Heads and Tails Pod to stay up to speed with the latest podcast releases.